Since the pandemic started in Canada, the federal government's handed out more than $289 billion in COVID support to Canadians who were hard hit by the lockdowns and restrictions. There were also income support programs for employers, as well as rent subsidies to help affected businesses. Now the federal government's pivoting to two new, two new, more targeted programs to get us to the finish line of the pandemic. But will it be enough? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. We're coming to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. The previous support programs are being replaced by two new ones. The Tourism and Hospitality Recovery Program, which applies to those sectors hit hard by health restrictions. The other, Hardest Hit Business Recovery Program, for those businesses that can show a 50% decline in revenue from the beginning of the pandemic. The Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit will come into effect if lockdowns return. Our unpublished vote question asked you, should the federal government wind down the Canada Recovery Benefit? 76% said yes. 21.8% said no. 2.2% were unsure. Now, however you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the end of the candidate recovery benefit and what's next, I'm pleased to be joined by James Rylett. He's the Vice President of Restaurants Canada. David McDonald is the Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Ryan Mallow is the Senior Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And Mikhail Scuderud is a professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Waterloo. And I thank you all for joining us. Uh, we'll tar- start off with you, David. Did the federal government wait too long to make this change? Well, there were certainly still plenty of people and certainly still plenty of businesses who were accessing these programs. Uh, When we take a look at the number of workers, the count of workers that were still included in the CRB, uh, there's about 880,000 workers um, sorry, 880,000 workers uh, who were still receiving the CRB uh, when it closed down. There's another 690,000 workers uh, who were likely receiving some support via the wage subsidy program. Uh, now, there was some extension in some of the, the, the sickness and caregiving benefit programs. So about 70,000 workers would have been in that group. And so they would have continued with benefits likely after that. Uh, but there's still one and a half million workers that uh, either lost benefits or potentially were at risk of losing benefits, depending on whether businesses could switch off of the wage subsidy and onto something else, like one of the rehiring grants or one of these new proposed credits. Um, you know, it's it's probably about a quarter of businesses that are receiving either the wage subsidy or the rent subsidy um, that were in the hospitality industry and therefore might be eligible for the new hospitality version of the wage subsidy uh, and rent subsidy. Uh, the other three quarters, it's unclear. Uh, the hardest, you know, it's unclear. We'll have to see over the coming weeks how many businesses can make that transition. Certainly not all of them are going to make it. Uh, so certainly if you're outside of that sector or you haven't seen a 50% loss in revenue, uh, there really isn't any support for you, uh, you know, go, going forward after the 23rd of October. Well, what do you think, James? Did the government wait too long or should this have been done earlier? Uh, no, we thought thought it should be uh, continued, actually. Uh, the, there definitely did need to be some changes. 
Um, but with the new threshold, there's going to be a lot of people that are in serious trouble that are now cut off with nothing. Um, I think what we liked about previous programs was that you weren't cut off at a certain point, you were stepped down. Um, we would have liked to see that. Um, we don't want people to just be forced now to make a decision. Can I continue with the debt load that I've, I've accrued over this uh, 20 months? In terms of the threshold, uh, what makes it so, so difficult? Well, it's just it's a high threshold. There's a it's a lot of uh, of uh, loss, um, especially in our industry, the restaurant industry. Uh, profit margins on the best of time are four uh, percent, and uh, they've been running in the in the COVID times around two percent. So, if you only have even with thirty percent uh, loss in revenue, that that's that cuts into your uh, you're, you're losing money. Eighty uh, percent of restaurants still continue to lose money or just barely break even. So it's it's just a tough time to be being cut off totally from all all supports. Uh, Ryan, from the, uh, the position of the CFIB, was this good timing, or should uh, things have uh, perhaps waited? Well, I think we're in line with James. We would have liked to have seen the existing subsidies continue. We know a lot of business still very much need that support. Uh, and keep in mind too, you're looking here at a province like Ontario. There are businesses like gyms, bowling alleys, dance studios that as of Monday, October 25th are allowed to serve 100% capacity for the first time in over 580 days, right? They have not been whole since the pandemic uh, started. And, you know, we're, we're hopeful that that's a, a change that's going to get them into a better position. But fact of the matter is, is that there's still a really long way to go here when it comes to the recovery. And those supports as, you know, rolling provincial restrictions are still happening are still very much needed uh, for businesses to really get back on track. What do you think, Mikhail? Was this the time to pull the plug on it and uh, make it more targeted or like uh, everybody else on the panel? Should it have just stayed for now? So I, I would argue it, it probably should have been made more targeted earlier. I think it made sense at the beginning because there was such urgency to get out these programs for both consumers and producers or workers and firms um, that they were essentially universal kind of programs. Uh, there was really no targeting in them. Uh, and so the problem is once you, you, you provide these kinds of programs, pulling them back and telling some folks that they're no longer going to qualify for this and not other folks, that's really hard to do politically. And so I understand why it's taken so long for these revisions or reforms to happen. Um, but I, I would say probably should have, from an economist perspective and the kind of objectives we think about, it should have been done a long time ago. David, uh, in your uh, latest report, uh, you say the uh, the elephant in the room regarding this is is, is the self-employed. Why is that? Well, so this is the group that isn't otherwise covered. Uh, you know, even if uh, the with the closure of the wage subsidy, even if all six hundred ninety thousand workers that were, are are I mean, the wage subsidy says they're being supported by this program, lose their jobs, they will almost certainly be eligible for EI. And so there is another program that backstops, backstops them. Um, for the people uh, on the CRB receiving the CRB, they're self-employed workers. And so they are, by definition, not eligible for the EI. And so there is no further support for them once this ends. Uh, there is the new lockdown support program, but there's no place in Canada at present where any worker would qualify for that because there isn't presently a lockdown. You could envision some point in the future where that might happen, uh, but that isn't uh, presently happening. And so you've got this big group of workers 
Um, that's actually quite close to the peak number of workers that received the CRB. The peak at peak, it was putting out uh, benefits to 1.2 million uh, workers. Now it's about 900,000. So it's certainly come down a bit since that peak. Um, but the you know the the counts are still quite high. I don't I don't necessarily think the CRB per se should continue indefinitely. I mean I think that this is a real opportunity to integrate self-employed workers into the EI system in a more long-term sense. Unfortunately, these transfers from program to program, it, it appears as if there's just no forethought in terms of how these transitions are going to happen. Um, and, it, you know, and so we saw some of this debate during the last federal election with people saying, you know, the Liberal Party, for instance, saying that uh, self-employed should be part of the EI system and they're going to have a plan ready for January 2023. Well, I mean, that's that's cold comfort for people who can't potentially get a job now um, and are self-employed. And it's unfortunate that that these key policy decisions really, really wait until the deadline comes or it's two days before the deadline and then these last minute negotiations happen and, and things go forward. Of course, the other thing to remember is we're still in a minority parliament and so other parties will likely have a say in what these new benefits look like, even though that's not what it looks like from this perspective and the Liberals can extend portions of these programs without needing parliamentary approval. Uh, however, sooner or later, they're gonna require parliamentary approval and then other parties will get involved. And so then it'll be more interesting because it, it's not something you can carte blanche say this is the way it's going to be uh just like in the transfer from this the, the original serb to the crb there were there were last minute negotiations happening right up until the end in terms of what the what the uh minimum benefit would be for instance initially the liberals wanted it to be uh, four hundred dollars and, and it was moved up last minute to five hundred dollars a week yeah uh, james uh, we, your industry is uh in support of keeping the uh, the benefits going uh and obviously restaurants having a heck of a time finding people um, with pandemic employment back to where it was, why, why are uh, your clients or your, your customers, your members still having trouble finding help? I think the biggest problem uh, would be, uh, and here I'm going to steal some data from David McDonald, is, yeah. is uh, they uh, most a lot of our, our, our workers left the industry. They went to other industries. Uh, in droves, and no one can blame them. They, you know, our industry was something you couldn't count on. You didn't have any job security because from week to week, the governments were changing their how they were opening us and closing us. So uh, it's hard to blame anybody that decided to take a, a more secure job. But we're not going to get those people back. It's going to take a long time for us to replace those workers. Um, it's also we lost the best workers. We lost the ones that were trained. We lost the ones that were passionate about the industry. And you can't just say anybody can jump in, the, in these jobs. It's it's going to take a while to replenish the industry, to uh, get more new new uh, people trained up, and to uh, get some more uh, um, excitement in the industry. So uh, it's going to be a bit of a process, and uh, I don't think there's going to be a single way we can do it. Um, but we have to look at the entire culture of our industry and say, how can we get get people back into our industry and, and maybe for a lifetime as opposed to um, part time? You know, I, I'm glad you said that because quite often, you know, it's an awful lot of rhetoric, but it can, it can be fairly hurtful. It's like, well, there's a lot of jobs out there. Just grab one. It's like, well, you don't have the experience. You don't have the background. And, you know, if you don't have a passion for it, why are you even going to bother? That's true. And and and. Most people don't even want people that don't, aren't passionate about the jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe you can't have to fill a job for a couple of weeks, but if you know that person's not going to be there when you need them, uh, you'd rather keep looking for somebody that's going to be there when, when uh, in in the long term. 
Now, Ryan, in terms of uh, obviously your members, I guess the, the same question as well. How do we get more people coming back to you? Uh, obviously, you know, small business in Canada. So I don't think there's one silver bullet solution to that question. I know that governments at all levels are focused in on what a labor shortage means, but this was also something that we're seeing made acute by the pandemic, but it was very much here before the pandemic started. We were hearing from, um, yeah, industries like restaurants, industry like retail, but we were hearing from transportation and warehousing. We are hearing from accountants offices and white collar industries um, that there just seems to be a, a general shortage that is out there. So I think part of it in the longer term, and I, I credit Minister McNaughton and the Ontario government for putting some significant focus here, is starting to talk a lot earlier about what jobs are there, about what skill sets uh, are required, what skills are transferable between jobs. You know, you uh, get a BA in English does not mean you have to be an English teacher. There's a whole lot else that that communication uh, can deliver for you. So I think starting to have those conversations earlier, talking about where jobs are, what to expect in terms of experience. I would love to see a little more focus on work integrated learning and co-op, in particular at the high school level, get people exposed to the workplace a little bit earlier. Um, but it's certainly a, a key conversation and one that we need to have very quickly moving forward because it is putting a lot of pressure on businesses and now a lot of pressure on the recovery. Mikhail, I, I'm wondering when we sort of look back on the pandemic, what, what do you think ex, it exposed in the Canadian labor market? Well, we know there were, was a labor short. I mean, there were labor shortage issues in the way we measured them before the pandemic. Um, we haven't actually reached the, the level of the, what we used to measure our, our job vacancies per job seeker. And, and we haven't quite reached the level we were at before the pandemic. So, it let, I mean, we shouldn't get too worried and carried away with these concerns about labor shortages. I, I also, I have to come back to some suggestion that was, you know, that all these restaurant workers have left the restaurant industry. I, I don't think we can say that. I think the the work that, that David did, there are some challenges in the data that we have. The labor force survey, once somebody's jobless, for more than one year, 12 months, we don't know where they came from. So there's really no way to know where these folks who seem to be disappearing were, where they came from. So um, I think we've gotta be really careful in, in interpreting the data. We know that wages have not been rising in Canada. So we've yet to see that, that dynamic play out. Um, that's something you would expect to see if there were very significant structural labor shortages. That's not what we're seeing. Um, we've got one and a half million jobless workers still who say that they want to work. Um, I would come back to what Ryan says. I think he nailed it. Um, I think that's really where our emphasis needs to be right now. We need to support worker reallocation. People that want to shift industries, we need to support that. But even within industries, we need to support that kind of training. We need to you know, support upskilling within these occupations. We need to support technological changes that improve labor productivity within these occupations. In my view, the kind of the tightness of the labor market, which is the way I like to think about it, rather than labor shortages, which raises a lot of fears in people and, you know, Labor market tightness can be a very healthy thing for an economy. It forces employers to use labor efficiently, to think about technological innovation. It can raise wages, raise productivity. These are all good things for the economy. So I, I, I don't get too worried about these labor shortage numbers that we're seeing. 
You know, David, that, that's an interesting point. We hear so much about companies in this in this country that are sitting on what I guess it's called what dead money. They have a lot of money for investment, or they could spread it into employees, but they're just not. They're just waiting. And, and do you think that's part of the problem too? Well, in this case, a lot of that money is held by the corporate world, and so uh, it's likely in some way related to to hiding money in tax havens and so on. So it's not small businesses that are sitting on piles of cash; it's the corporate world that's sitting on piles of cash, uh, and you know they're they're doing it for uh, you know for for tax avoidance reasons in some cases. I mean, I think I think it is worth coming back to saying like what what do we think is going to happen in this sector? You know, particularly food and accommodation. You know, we take a look at at this this return to the level of employment we were at pre-pandemic. Yes, we've gotten back to that same level, but there's been substantial changes below the surface in terms of where those workers are. Huge decline in the number of workers in food and accommodation, but big increase in the number of workers in other sectors, uh, healthcare and education, which are a bit more obvious, but also professional services, which has gained a lot of employees over the course of the pandemic. Which isn't to say that these sort of restaurant workers are becoming lawyers and accountants, which is that category, but it may be that they're filling roles in those offices as office managers and that sort of thing. Um, and, and I think it's I think it's fair to say they're probably not coming back, or they're certainly not coming back at the wages being offered. We are going to get an interesting update this week on uh, wages being offered in, uh, in, in industries like food and accommodation to see if those wages are going up, uh, you, you know, to try to entice new workers, to try to entice old workers back. Uh, at present, they really haven't been going up very much at all. They're certainly actually down a little bit uh, when you compare it to inflation for a job that's become more difficult. Uh, you know, working in a restaurant has been a tough job in the best of times. Uh, it's gotten more difficult. Not only do you have to wear a mask all day, you're exposed potentially to COVID-19, uh, but now you've got to enforce mask mandates and vaccine mandates, which makes it a much more difficult task. And so some jerk who wants to come in and make trouble, now it's your problem, whereas this type of thing just didn't happen before. And so I, I think it's a less appealing job than it, than it would have been before. So I think one of the outcomes uh, is likely wage increases in the sector, which will likely lead to price increases in certain portions of that sector. So if you're more on the high end and you've got more flexibility in terms of pricing, so you're fine dining or something like that, you may have more flexibility to increase prices. Um, in other parts of the sector, I think there's going to be a lot more challenges in the sense that there just isn't that same flexibility to increase prices and therefore increase wages. And so we're going to be stuck with a lot of businesses in that sector who just won't find the workers. So you're going to find curtailment of hours. You're going to find days where they won't be able to be open. And this isn't something that's going to be solved because the CRB ended on Sunday. This is something that's going to last for, for some time to come, um, as well as more automation. I mean, you know, more automation in kitchens, more automation in ordering, and potentially, um, you know, delivery is here to stay. Food delivery is here to stay. The costs are lower. And so that, that's another way that, that the sector can become more productive with fewer workers, uh, you know, as we as we move forward and try to adjust for this big change in the labor market that's happened during the pandemic. You know, James, uh, you know, obviously wage increase is a good way to attract people or, or retain people. But, you know, when you're, you know, your profit margin at best is four percent, it's it's kind of tough to hand that out, isn't it? Yeah. And, and much of the flexibility that's uh, that we have in menu pricing has already been taken up by debt from the pandemic, as well as uh, increased food prices and increased utility prices. So uh, I totally agree with David that there's not much we can do on price, uh, except for the certain with the, the higher end uh, market. Um, but, and even that, that's starting to get pressure and, and, and people are starting to get a little bit of a sticker shock. So we'll see a, uh, an upturn. Um, 
like I said before, it's not all going to be about wages. It's going to be about how do we make these better jobs? How do we take some of that stress out of those jobs? How do we make them uh, career jobs as opposed to just something you do while you're in college or, or high school? Um, those sorts of things. So it's going to be a long-term process and uh, we'll continue to, to look at retraining people and then uh, hopefully we'll get, uh, get the ball rolling in, the, in, a, in a good direction again. Uh, Ryan, we, we, you know, we have a shortage of skilled and a shortage of unskilled workers in, in the workforce. And which one's impacting your members the most? So it really depends on what sector they're in. We are certainly hearing it on the unskilled, or sorry, rather the skilled side a little bit more, but they are number one and two in our monthly barometer report on the uh, biggest constraints to growth. Um, so on the skilled side, you know, we're seeing it on, you know, construction contractors and that sort of thing, uh, looking for help on that side. But I mean, we've, you know, the story that I go back to is we heard from a manufacturer in the Orangeville area who had, you know, $50,000 a year, full benefits paying job and couldn't get a warm body in, uh, to do it, let alone to, uh, hire someone who was skilled for the job. And we are starting to hear more and more now that that is business owners are, are having to turn to less and less skilled people to fill the roles because of the personnel shortage, which is resulting in a lot more time being taken to train them up. And the two things that arise with that is one, there's a significant cost that comes with on the job training that isn't really recognized through government uh, credits or programs. They tend to recognize the the in-class training, which a lot of small business owners don't do. They're more on the job and on the fly, and it pulls the business owner or the manager for whatever it is they normally do. Um, but it, but it's also, uh, you know, comes with a, a uh, you know, you, you train this person up and then suddenly business owners are kind of treated like the minor leagues. Then suddenly these employees become much more valuable to larger corporations. You can perhaps offer more financial flexibility, more benefits or something like that. And so poaching becomes an issue. And it's not to say that that, you know, want to make sure people can move around the labor market and that sort of thing. But there's no recognition of the fact that the business owners invest all of that time and money. And then when the person is trained up, often lose that employee and have to go right back to start again with no help um, on their side. Uh, so a lack of loyalty. <laughs> a loyalty, well, and a, loyalty and a bucket quarter will get you a coffee and that's about it. I mean, again, I, I don't begrudge a, an employee for, for doing it, but I think that it would be very helpful on the, on the federal side, the provincial side, if governments could recognize the amount of training that goes into young people in particular. I mean, it's very rare that a young person goes into a job knowing how to be an employee, let alone knowing how to do the job they've been hired for. And again, I think that's where the education system can play a bit of a greater role in preparing for simple things like showing up for interviews, coming in on time, how to write an inter-office memo or an email uh, professionally. But the more people can come into the workplace with those skills, the more we can focus on training them for the job at hand and not just how to be the employee. Mikhail, uh, we've been talking about the Canada Revenue uh, Recovery Benefit and, you know, obviously the benefits were for workers and able to maintain Canada's consumption rate at this point. But, you know, when we cut these benefits down, uh, are we looking at a contraction if if these people can't obviously collect and then spend, which was sort of keeping the economy moving? That depends, I guess, in large extent, how people respond to the, the, the changes in these benefit levels. I think one thing we have to remember is that a lot of these folks were, are working, uh, for sure. Large numbers of these folks receiving the CRB and also the EI uh, right now are employed. 
Um, you know, there's a, a very generous allowance for earning income with the CRB. Um, so there's no question, if you look at the employment numbers, there's no question that large numbers are. Um, so I, I, I don't worry about that that much. Um, it's, it seems like I probably worry a lot less than the other panelists. Um, the other thing, I mean, I think it's really important to keep in mind here is that, you know, firm dynamics, firm new firms being born and, and firms businesses dying is, is very much a natural part of an economy. Um, and the reality is that during this pandemic, business failures are way down, way down. Um, and, and so we have to think about, you know, if we hear about stories like this, this restaurant or this business in Orangeville that, that can't find workers because their mar profit margins on, the, on whatever is they're selling is not high enough or the, the wages they need to pay to attract workers are too high. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing if those businesses fail. I mean, the economies are fluid, dynamic systems. And, and when some businesses don't make it, what happens is capital and labor gets reallocated to something else that's more productive. And that's a very healthy part of an economy. We don't want to discourage that kind of reallocation. And so the reality is, I would be, I mean, echoing what, what David said, and I think he's exactly right, is that I think this pandemic will have a, a very permanent effect on the share of our economy that's in food and accommodations. I think in particular, you know, indoor dining will, it will take a very, if not permanent, very long-term hit. I think the proportion of, of workers that are, are employed in that industry will change. But that doesn't mean they're gonna sit at home. That means that there's gonna be opportunities somewhere else and, and the economy will adjust and reallocate. And, and I think there's a lot of good signs right now with tight labor markets that that reallocation is happening. I think David's right, although we're not quite sure what the exact numbers are. For sure, there are folks that used to work in that industry, food and accommodations, who are transitioning to something else. And I think that's a very good, good healthy part of an economy. David, how much is the current employment insurance system contributing to the problem? Uh, in terms of what? Well, the issue of getting people back to work, uh, the, the, the big price tag on the Canada recovery benefit at this point. Well, I think we're going to find out, I guess. I mean, we've cut, you know, 880,000 people off the CRB. Uh, certainly the experience in the U.S. when EI programs were ending early there was that there wasn't a huge impact on employment. So, I mean, $300 a week is not the king's ransom. and It's not a lot of money, right? No. Uh, and so, you know, is that going to force some workers to go back into jobs that they, that they you know, would make $400 a week at or five? I mean, maybe. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the big problem. The big problem is the, is the brain drain out of the industry that's gone to another industry. I mean, I, I, I echo Mikhail's point, which is that um, it, just because you started a business does not mean that the government should sustain that business till the end of time. Um, I, think what it, I think one of the things that's really missing so far is that there are a variety of programs that continue to support businesses, even if they're not in these two new programs in the hospitality industry or the hardest hit. There's the rehiring uh, program federally as well as provincially, which can further support businesses. I think the one piece that's really missing is an off-ramp, is an off-ramp for business owners that have too much debt and uh, need to declare bankruptcy, which is often extremely difficult to do for small businesses, um, largely because small businesses are often insured by personal assets. So it's your house that's insuring your business loan, or it's insuring your lease, or it's insuring some equipment. Uh, and most small businesses would uh, just can't go bankrupt in that sense in the same way that big businesses can. 
And so they're stuck, right? They're stuck running zombie businesses, uh, you know, applying month after month for government programs, not because they want to keep running this, but because they can't declare personal bankruptcy and lose their house. And so I, I really think that it's great to be optimistic. There's clear signs of recovery in the economy. Um, but for business owners who aren't going to make it, let's offer them an offering that isn't more debt, that isn't more government programs, but it's some way to restructure their business such that they don't they don't get wiped out personally or as badly as they would without some help. Um, and they can go on and start other businesses that maybe aren't in food and accommodation. Uh, James, I'm wondering, when we look at uh, the, the program, the CRB, uh, do you think the federal government was uh, maybe a little too generous with it? As you know, you look at other country or, uh, countries, we're paying 75% of salary uh, as opposed to like a, a lump sum here in Canada. Uh, do, you, do you think that was uh, they were a tad too generous? I, I don't think I'm in a position to say. I, mm -hmm. I, I did. I think the the benefit of of the of the set amount was that it was easy to do and it got people got money flowing quickly um i think that was the goal of the government and, I, and they met that goal uh yeah we did have reports that there was some trouble hiring people back uh last summer but that was the early days and you got to remember too that a lot of people were still nervous about going back even for the extra few hundred dollars a week they might make so um I don't know if it's the right amount or, or hot, too high or too low, but it definitely um, the ease of the of the program put money in people's pockets, and you know, to be fair, it got them kept them spending in restaurants, so that was that was appreciated. Uh, Ryan, uh, obviously the pandemic. Uh, let's hope it was only a once in a lifetime event for us. But what should Canadians in the labor force be thinking for the next next time around? We'll call it a disruption more than anything else. Well, I, I think one of the things that's really come out of this is the value that a lot of employees and the benefit to employers of flexibility. That's sort of been the key word throughout the pandemic. The businesses that have been able to uh, show that they can pivot, that they can, you know, make online offerings or, you know, move quickly to delivery on the, on the restaurant side or something, that sort of thing, have managed to survive longer and I think are in a slightly healthier position. Um, than others. But I mean, at, at the end of this, I think I think there's still a pretty big reckoning. Like I, I get what Mikhail is saying in terms of business churn is very healthy and normal. And uh, I, mean, I mean, again, I would love the subsidies to be over and not need to exist. But a lot of these businesses aren't closing because they were bad business decisions. They were closing because the government asked them to for the health and safety of Canadians. And they did. But I mean, you know, none of James' restaurateurs went into business going, yeah, 50% of my floor or less is the model that I'm going in with, right? And that was that was a government decision that made the change. I think that's that's where some of the difference there lies. Um, I agree with David though, and like there does need to be an off-ramp. I think the closures are lagging. I think they're coming. Um, for example, uh, rent uh, eviction protection was tied to SIRS in Ontario. That has expired. The clock is now ticking. We've got 12 weeks. Second week of January is when uh, landlords will be able to evict. Uh, people on those programs. I think there will be a reckoning there. Um, and to David's point, uh, our numbers show the average COVID-related debt level for an Ontario business is $190,000. It's a huge amount of money. A lot of people have leveraged their houses, their cars, borrowed from friends and family, maxed out credit cards. I mean, a lot of them are very personally in a, a tough financial position. I get that on a macro level, economic-wise, like we're not going to be without restaurants or without gyms or dance studios, you know, moving forward. But on the micro level, yeah, you're going to lose your town diner. You're going to lose your kid's dance studio. You're going to lose your favorite retail store in a lot of places. And there's, 
there's a local economic cost to that, but there's also a community cost that, again, I don't think as we emerge from this cave we've been in the last 19 months, we've really reckoned with yet. I mean, walk down any street, I think, in Ontario, and there's just a lot of boarded up closed shops. Something will replace them. But we lost a lot during the pandemic that I don't think we've seen yet. Uh, Mikhail, what should Canadians and the labor force be thinking about the next time if we have a disruption like this? So, I, I mean, the the initial hit of the pandemic in, in March of 2020, I think it's really hard. James sort of alluded to this. I think it's hard to go back and criticize the, you know, the way, the way that the, the Canadian government responded to that. I think if you look over the entire pandemic now and, and look at what's happened to, um, you know, COVID fatality rates in Canada, cases even, I think it's really hard to criticize how we've done. I mean, the, the, there was a huge objective there to limit the amount of deaths. Um, that's ultimately what this was about. Um, and I think we've done phenomenally well. Uh, so I think if we go through this, there have been lessons. I, I think gonna, there's going to be a lot more research in the years to come that are looking at the episode to see if there are lessons. Um, but for the most part, I think it's hard to be critical. Um, as for the, you know, these, these business failures, I, I, I still don't see it. I, I still don't see the concern. Um, you know, if, 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 if I walk through my, my local town, I see a lot of board up stores. I mean, to some extent, this is going to reflect the consumer's preferences. You know, if consumers don't want to go to restaurants anymore, then that's not what they're going to do. And those restaurants aren't going to be there. Um, if they don't want to shop downtown, then things are going to get shut downtown and they're going to go somewhere else to shop. Um, this this it, it doesn't worry me. If there really are restaurants who are producing a product that consumers want, they will find a way to sell it, uh, whether there's indoor dining or not. Um, there are restaurants that have performed really well through this, very successful restaurants. Um, so again, I'm, I, I think there should be an offer. I, I, I will say that you know, like nationalizing private industry, like, you know, the CFIB is calling for 75% subsidies at this point is, is from my perspective, pretty ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, we, we want private industry. We want that risk to be there. When somebody starts up a business, and even if they're leveraged with their own personal assets, that's a risk they take. And that risk being there is very healthy. It ensures that the investments that are happening have high expected returns, that people aren't going into businesses with low expected returns, right? They're being very thoughtful about and doing the research on, on what they expect those returns to be. That's all very healthy. So yes, I think there should be an off-ramp. I completely agree with David on that. But I also think we have to be careful in, 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 in you know, subsidizing what, what are being called zombie firms. I think there's a real cost to doing that. And I think we're far beyond the point now where we should be continuing with that. Well, great discussion, folks. Uh, and I want to thank uh, our guest today on Unpublished TV. James Rylett is the Vice President of Restaurants Canada. David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. As well, Ryan Mala, he is the Senior Director of Provincial Affairs uh, for Ontario for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Mikhail Scuderud, Professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Waterloo. Coming up on the next Unpublished TV, Alberta wants out of equalization. Should it be? Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.